I was born in Tallahassee, Florida. Now, that really has no significance other than that's just where my parents were living when it was time for me to be born. The only other significance to Tallahassee, that's where Florida State University is located. Go Seminoles. But we don't want to get off into that. But but there's just really not much significance about the, the place where I was born. Well, that's not the case when it comes to the place where Jesus was born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And for the next three weeks, I want us to unpack the significance of that place. Because there is a lot to say, a lot the Bible has to say about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. It's a special place. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Now Micah's in the Minor Prophets. It may have been a while since you've read Micah, so there's no shame in going to the table of contents first, okay? Micah chapter 5. Unless you're a Bible driller, you've got to go straight to it. Micah chapter 5 verse 1 is where we will get started. Micah chapter 5 verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, truth with no mixture of error. I'm grateful for the Bible. How about you? Now keep in mind as we read this passage, we're reading uh, some words that were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And that's going to take on... Uh, much significance as we work our way through this text. Micah chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth, and he shall be there. What? Peace. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this opportunity to worship you. Lord, to sing praises to your name and then to bow our hearts before your word, expecting you to speak. God, I just pray that you would speak with power. As the Word of God goes forth, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts, help us to learn the truths of Scripture, help us to understand the truths of Scripture, and then give us the the wherewithal, the desire to be more than just hearers of the Word. God, would you make us doers of the Word? Lord, give us the grace and the strength and the passion to obey. God, I pray that our lives will be changed. I pray you'd help us to see the significance of Bethlehem today. And more than that, God, help us to see the glory of Jesus today. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It's interesting to note that in this passage written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came to earth in Bethlehem, 
there is much about the Christmas story. This ancient passage is about Christmas. And there are four important elements of the Christmas story that are found in this passage that I want us to see. Now the first is this. Write the word place. Place. The first thing we see in this text is that this passage is about a place. Look what it says there in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah. Ephratah was the name of the district that surrounded the town of Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. So here in verse 2, Bethlehem is mentioned. Now, Bethlehem was a relatively insignificant town in the first century. And we see that by way of contrast. Notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 5. And if you look at the the wider context of chapter 4, the Lord is saying through the prophet Micah, judgment is coming. God was sending the Assyrians and the Babylonians to overthrow the Jewish people because they had rebelled against God to get their attention and judge them for their rebellion. So chapter 4 is about armies coming against Jerusalem. And verse 1 of chapter 5 is about Jerusalem being under siege. Look what it says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So it's mentioning there Jerusalem, the great city, being under siege. But notice the contrast in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And so here's what Micah is saying. There's a lot of action happening around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is under siege, but there's coming a day when the real action is going to happen in Bethlehem. And he says here, it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. This phrase meant that Bethlehem could not marshal 1,000 fighting men. That's what qualified a town to be numbered. If you could get 1,000 fighting men together, you could be a numbered town. So the fact that they were not a numbered town means they could not get 1,000 fighting men together. It was a a small town about five miles to the south-southwest of Jerusalem. It was a relatively insignificant uh, town in this day and time. Which leads to this question, why would God choose to make Bethlehem the place where the Messiah would be born instead of the great city, Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the priesthood was, where the king was? Why would God send his son to be born in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? If if I were writing the story, I probably would have wanted to say, you know, the, the king came from heaven to earth, and he came to Jerusalem, the city of the kings. But I'm not writing the story. God's writing the story. And God sent his son to Bethlehem, a relatively insignificant small village. Why? Why did God send him there? Well, let me give you some answers to that question. First of all, God loves to do the unexpected. If you read the Bible, it is the story of God moving in counterintuitive, unexpected ways. He loves to move in certain ways so that you see His greatness and His wisdom and His power. You you simply cannot paint God into a corner. You can't figure God out. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And often throughout the Bible, He does unexpected things like sending His Son to an insignificant village called 
Bethlehem. God loves to do the unexpected, and the scriptures bear that out. Also, I believe God chose to make Bethlehem the place where the Messiah would be born because he loves to use the weak, the powerless, and the insignificant so that he will get the glory. He loves to use the, the weak, the, the, the powerless, the insignificant things so that he will get the glory. When great, listen, when great things happen in unimportant places through unimportant people, you look to the one who is accomplishing the great things. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says that God loves to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise and to shame the strong. When God uses weak things, weak places, weak people, then who gets the glory? Not the weak vessel, but the one working through the weak vessel. So God sends his son to Bethlehem, not so that Bethlehem will get the glory, so that he will get the glory for using an insignificant town to send his son. Let me illustrate it like this. If you went to a art museum and you were privileged to stand before a Rembrandt painting, you would look at that painting and you probably would not praise the paintbrush. You wouldn't say, let me see the paintbrush that was used. You would say, no, this painter had great skill. There's a master artist that painted this painting. The the paintbrush, the instrument, would not get the glory. The, The master artist would get the glory. And God loves to work through weak things and weak people and weak churches so that people can see he's the master artist. You know what we are, church? We are a paintbrush. We're a paintbrush. He's the artist. He gets the glory. He's writing the story. He's painting the picture. He gets the glory. We are simply instruments in his hands. Bethlehem was an instrument, a vessel in God's hands that points to his greatness. You see, just like God used the little town of Bethlehem to bring us a Savior, maybe he wants to use you and he wants to use me to bring Jesus to someone else. God chose an insignificant place to bring us a Savior, to send us a Savior. And perhaps God wants to use insignificant people like me and you, just plain ordinary folks, to bring the Savior to others, right? It's really been neat these past few weeks as I've seen many of you... uh, Place your, your lives in the master's hands. Just to be a paintbrush. And let God use you to bring Christ to others. This past week we had a, a group of, of folks come in called Trophies of Grace. And, and these, these men love the outdoors. And they said, you know what? A lot of men love the outdoors. So we'll have this great display of, of replica deer heads. Of, of, of famous trophy bucks from all over the United States. And, and, and men will want to come see those. And we'll invite them to come see those, those, those trophy bucks. And we get them all together. We'll eat a meal. And just share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Just, just men that say, hey, I love the outdoors. And men love the outdoors. So let's get them together and talk about Jesus. Just, just simple. I'm just, they're just ordinary folks. Or, or folks in our church that would say, hey, we like basketball. Let's have a basketball tournament and gather some folks together and, 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 and point them to Christ. Or, hey, let's make cupcakes to raise money to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Or let's paint a painting to, get, to, to, to sell in the church so we can get money to Lottie Moon. I mean, just ordinary folks saying, God, I want to be a paintbrush. 
I'm just insignificant. I'm ordinary. But I want to put my life in your hands, and I want you to use me and make me a Bethlehem. Use Bethlehem to bring us Christ. Now use me to bring Christ to others. God loves using insignificant places and insignificant people because when he does that, guess who gets the glory? He gets the glory. And so Bethlehem was a relatively insignificant town in the first century. But it's the place where God sent his son to be born. Place. Place. But the second important element of the Christmas story that we find in this passage, this ancient prophecy, is prophecy. Prophecy. Just write the word prophecy down. Look what it says there in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So God said through Micah, I'm going to send a ruler to Bethlehem. He predicted, he prophesied that. Now, did this prophecy come to pass? Well, hold your place, but turn to Matthew chapter 2, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there it is. God said through Micah, I'm going to send a ruler to Bethlehem. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Matthew, Jesus was born in where? Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea. And born in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament, where he was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote Micah here, the verse we just read, Micah 5.2. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The the religious leaders say, King, the Bible said hundreds of years ago, the Old Testament said, the the Messiah would come to Bethlehem. The Gospels record that's exactly where Jesus Christ was born. In other words... The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was a specific fulfillment of a specific prophecy. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was a specific fulfillment of a specific prophecy. And here's the cool thing. This fulfilled prophecy is just one of many Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Did you know that there are 300 predictions and prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That number is is mind-boggling. Let me just give you some some quick examples of some Old Testament prophecies, things God said was going to happen, that happened in the life and ministry of Christ. For example, Isaiah 7.14 predicted that, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Bible records in Matthew that he was born to the Virgin Mary. Malachi 3.1 and chapter 4.5 say that the Messiah would be preceded by an Elijah-like figure who would live in the wilderness and crowd a message warning people to prepare the way for the Lord. 
prophetically speaking of John the Baptist. And the Bible tells us in the Gospels that John the Baptist preceded the, the public ministry of Christ. Zechariah 9.9, Haggai 2.7, and Malachi 3.1 foretold that the ministry of the Messiah would climax in Jerusalem, which, when, which the Messiah would enter humbly, riding on a young donkey before suddenly appearing boldly in the temple. The Bible said that would happen. That's exactly what happened in the days of Christ as he entered Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday riding a donkey. It was also foretold that the Messiah's ministry would contain the element of the miraculous. Isaiah 35, 5, and 6 and Psalm 78, 2 say that he would heal blind and deaf and lame people and he would teach the people uttering parables and that's what he did in the Gospels. Listen to this specificity. We are told in the Old Testament that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and the silver would be thrown on the temple floor and be used to buy a potter's field. Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 55, 12, and 14, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Amazing. Listen to what the Bible tells us about the death of the Messiah. Zechariah 13, 7 told us that the Messiah would be smitten and his followers would disperse like sheep who have suddenly and violently lost their shepherd. When Jesus Christ was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, his disciples scattered. And the Old Testament said in Zechariah, that's exactly what would happen. It was foretold that the Messiah would be attacked and rejected, accused by false witnesses, and he would remain silent, refusing to come to his own defense. Psalm 35, 11, Psalm 38, 13, and Isaiah 53, 7. It was foretold that he would be beaten and whipped and slain for the transgressions of those he came to save, and his death would be painful. Listen to what the Bible said hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked upon this earth about his death. Psalm 22, 17 and 18 told us that he, was, he would be publicly disrobed. His clothing would be gambled away by executioners, which is exactly what happened at the cross. Isaiah 53, 12 told us that, that the Messiah would be executed with criminals. We know that he died between two thieves. Isaiah 53, 5 and Psalm twenty two sixteen tell us his hands and feet were, would be pierced, which happened when he was nailed to the cross. Listen to me. When these verses talked about the cross, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. And yet the prophets say, that the Messiah would die by being pierced through his hands and his feet. Psalm 22.1 tells us that he would, he would question why God had forsaken him, which is what he said on the cross. Psalm 22.7 and 8 tell us that nearby mockers would deride him as he was hanging on the cross. The Bible told us that he would suffer acute thirst after massive losses of bodily fluids. His bones would be twisted from their joints. His heart would melt and break from grief. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen and 15. Isaiah 53, 9 told us that his corpse would be laid to rest in the borrowed tomb of a rich man. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ died on the cross. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible said, the the book of Isaiah said, that he would be laid in the borrowed tomb of a rich man. Wow. Isaiah 53, 9. And these are just some of the prophecies. There are 300 predictions and prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ. Now, let me just tell you this. There was a day when some skeptics scoffed at this idea. 
And the skeptic said, you know what, here's what happened. There were some zealous Jesus followers who, who went back to the Old Testament writings and added these prophecies in to match up to the life of Jesus Christ to make Jesus look better, to try to gain him a following. And, and skeptics would say, Jesus Christ didn't fulfill prophecies. He just lived his life, did his thing, and his followers went back and added all these prophecies in to make it look like he fulfilled prophecies. That's what a lot of people said. And a lot of people believe that until March 1947. You know what happened in March 1947? In the wilderness area by the Dead Sea, a young Bedouin uh, herder had lost one of his sheep. He was chasing him through the cliffs, and he thought that maybe this uh, sheep went into a cave. He was going to go in and look for his sheep, but before he wanted to make sure there were no critters in there, so he got, a, he got a stone and he threw it into the cave and he heard something break, heard something shatter. And he walked into that cave and found these, these ceramic or clay jars with some things in them. And he looked for treasure, didn't see any treasure, saw some things rolled up in there, and, and he didn't think much about it, told some of his friends. Eventually, these, these things in the clay uh, jars... Uh, made them to some antiquities dealers and some archaeologists, some historians that began to study these documents, and what they found was extraordinary. These, these findings were called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in a, a barren area by the Dead Sea called Qumran. I was there just recently. It was awesome. I got to see the cave, the first cave that the shepherd boy threw the rock into. And we got to go to the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem and see the actual Dead Sea Scrolls on display. I got a picture by one of the clay canisters. I was geeking out. It was awesome. It was awesome. But here's why that's significant. Those Dead Sea Scrolls have been studied as to the time they were, they were made. They were, they're copies of the Old Testament and other things. But in those Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies from every book of the Old Testament except for Esther and Nehemiah. But every other book in the Old Testament is, is at least in part found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. These, these people that live in the desert would make copies of the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah is complete in the Dead Sea Scrolls. A complete reading of the book of Isaiah. And here's why that's significant. It's been proven that these copies of the Old Testament, listen to me, were made at least 100 years before the time of Christ. Which means the Old Testament, all these prophecies, were in place well before Christ ever walked upon the face of the earth. So that takes away, skeptics, the leg you're standing on. These were not fanciful Add-ins by zealous followers of Jesus. The Bible said clearly well before the time of Christ that these things would come to pass and they were fulfilled in Christ. Wow. Wow. 300 predictions fulfilled in Christ. One of those is so precious that Jesus would be born in a very specific place named Bethlehem. So we've talked about the place, and we've talked about prophecy, but, but third, let's talk about the person. The person that would be born in Bethlehem. 
There, there are four things I want you to see about this one who would be born in that town. Number one, he would be a ruler. Look what it says back in Micah, back in Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this one who would be born in Bethlehem, this Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem, was going to be a king, a ruler. Now here's why that's a big deal. There are a lot of folks that are comfortable with the Christmas story. They, they like the nativity scenes. They like to sing Silent Night and Away in a Manger. They, they love to think about Jesus, baby Jesus. And yet they've never bowed their hearts to him and recognized him as Lord of their life. Can I remind you that baby Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And he didn't stay a baby. He grew up and lived a perfect, matchless life and died on the cross for your sins and my sins and rose from the grave and ascended to the Father. And one day he's coming back and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A lot of folks say, yeah, I love the Christmas story, but they don't love Jesus. I love the Christmas story, but they've never bowed their hearts to King Jesus. The Bible says the one born in Bethlehem would be a ruler, a king. Lord, have you bowed your heart to King Jesus? And if you have not, you're missing the point of Christmas. Secondly, not only was he a ruler, he was divine. And he is divine. Look what it says in Micah 5. Verse 2, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That, that phrase ancient days could be translated from everlasting. In other words, the one born in Bethlehem, the ruler to be born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, has no beginning. Jesus Christ has always existed. When he was born to Mary, it was not the beginning of the existence of Christ. The incarnation was simply when Jesus left heaven and came to earth taking on human flesh. But he existed before the incarnation. He's always existed. There's there's never been a time when he's not existed. Before there was ever a universe, Jesus was there. Existing with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's always been there. Now listen to me. Here's why that's important. The quality of having no beginning is a quality reserved for God alone. Only God gets to say, I have no beginning. None of us can make that claim. We all have a beginning, don't we? Our universe has a beginning. We have a beginning. But God can say, I have no beginning. And this one born in Bethlehem has no beginning. He is infinite. He is eternal. Which means the one born in Bethlehem prophesied in this text is none other than God himself. So the one born in Bethlehem is a ruler and he's divine. But third, he's human. Look what it says in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So yes, he's Fully God, no beginning, but he's also fully man. He's born to Mary. This this Hebrew young lady gives birth to Jesus. 
And so, Jesus Christ is born of the virgin. Fully God, but also fully human. And that's where we get into the realm of mystery. Think about this, to quote the the song in Christ alone. The incarnation says that when Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, we had and have or had the fullness of God in helpless babe. Say, wait, can you explain that? Absolutely not. But I believe it. The Bible teaches it. That when when Mary gave birth to Jesus, we had there the fullness of God in helpless babe. Think about that. Colossians 2.9 says it like this, that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Wow! That's what Christmas is about. The fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. God taking on human flesh. Jesus Christ took on humanity for you and for me. He took on humanity so he could die for humans like us. So he could take our place on the cross. He took on humanity so he could die in our place. So the one born in Bethlehem is a ruler. He's divine. He's human. But but forth, he's a shepherd. Look what it says in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. This verse tells us that the one that would be born to Mary in Bethlehem would be a shepherd king rather than a warrior king. The Jews in the first century, many of them were looking for a a political ruler, a military leader who would overthrow Roman rule and oppression. They were looking for someone to come and, and lead a great revolt. But Micah tells us, He's coming not to be a warrior king. He's coming to be a shepherd king. He's coming not to overthrow Roman oppression. He's coming to overthrow our greatest enemy, sin. He's coming to deal with our greatest enemy, Satan. He's coming to deal a final blow to our greatest enemy, death. Jesus Christ came by his own words to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Jesus is a shepherd king. In other words, he takes care of us. He's come to gather his people, to gather his sheep, and to provide for them and watch over them and lead them to eternity. Jesus is a shepherd. Can I just say by way of personal testimony? Everybody look at me for a moment. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's good when you know the Lord is your shepherd. And you may be here today and the Lord's not your shepherd. You're far from God. Doing your own thing. Living your own life. I want you to know that Jesus is a shepherd king who loves you and will forgive you and will transform your life. And give you hope and meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy as he leads you to eternity in heaven. The Lord is my shepherd. And so, the one born in Bethlehem would be a ruler, divine, human, a shepherd. God sent us his son to come and seek and save that which was lost. 
I read this story that was written by Pastor Clifford Stewart of Louisville, Kentucky. He sent his parents a microwave one Christmas, and here's how he recalls the experience. They were excited that now they too could be part of the instant generation. When dad unpacked the microwave and plugged it in, literally within seconds, the microwave transformed two smiles into frowns. Even after reading the directions, they couldn't make it work. Two days later, my mother was playing bridge with a friend and confessed her inability to get the microwave to even boil water. And here's what she said. To get this thing to work, I really don't need better directions. I just needed my son to come along with the gift. Now listen to me. Aren't you glad that when God sent us salvation... He didn't send a complex set of directions for us to follow. He sent us his son to follow. He sent us his only son, who is our only hope. If we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. Which leads me to the fourth and final element of the Christmas story found in this text. We've talked about the place and the person and the prophecy. But fourth and last, let's talk about peace. Look what it says back in Micah chapter 5, verse 5. He shall be their peace. Whose peace? We'll back up to verse 4. They shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. So the prophecy here says the one who would be born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary would bring peace to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to give us peace with God. And this peace is available for anyone that embraces Christ to the ends of the earth. Peace. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, before you met Christ, you were an enemy of God. You had sinned against a holy God. I had sinned against a holy God. Our sin separates us from God. But Jesus came to die for our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. And when we embrace him by faith as our Lord and Savior, Jesus applies his shed blood to our spiritual account and washes away our sin. And because our sins are washed away, there's no longer a barrier between us and a holy God. Now we can be reconciled to God and we can call Him Father. That's peace, right? He came to give us peace. Now, peace is a a difficult concept to, to explain. But you know it when you got it. And you know it when you don't. And some of you in this room this morning don't have peace. And the reason you don't have peace is because you are far from God. Jesus is the only one that gives peace. It says it here in Micah 5. The one who would be born in Bethlehem would be our peace. He's the only one that gives peace. Peace with God. Freedom from our sins, forgiveness for our sins, hope and promise and and, and joy because we know that heaven is in our future. He's the only one that gives us peace. 
Because of Jesus, listen, my past is redeemed. My present makes sense and my future is secure. That's peace. And some of you don't have that. But Jesus loves you. And he wants to be your shepherd. He wants you to follow him. And if you'll follow him, he will give you peace. So, if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, listen to me. What better time of the year than the season we celebrate the incarnation? What better time of the year than this time of the year could there be to give your life to Jesus? He will be your peace. He'll deal with your sins and bring you into relationship with God. So how would I sum up this sermon? If you look there in your notes, I give you the point of this this sermon. Micah 5 is we're kind of exploring the, the significance of Bethlehem. The Christmas story is about a place, Bethlehem, that fulfilled a prophecy, a specific prophecy, concerning a person, Jesus, who brings true peace, salvation. The Christmas story is about a place that fulfilled a prophecy about a person, who brings us peace. That's what this text is all about. Have you experienced the peace of God that only comes through Christ?